Welcome back to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we are helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. Bryce Hales and Brad Edwards are back with you today exploring the ways that Jesus, our King, leads us into a kingdom way of living. And we've got an exciting conversation that we want to bring you into today. Brad and I sat down with David French, Iraq War veteran, lawyer, journalist, and we wanted to talk to David because as we explore what it means to follow Jesus in these polarized times, David French is a great example of somebody who's doing this really well. David has a new book out called Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation that came out just a couple of weeks ago where he is exploring polarization in our time. And Brad and I have been talking about uh, this in detail. And so getting David's insight into this issue is, is incredibly uh, useful. We're bringing you today part one of a two-part conversation we had with David where we sat down to get his insight first on what exactly is going on in this politically charged moment. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us. It, it's been really encouraging to know that you're going to be joining us today. I've been looking forward to this because you really know that you've arrived uh, as a podcaster when when Chuck <laughs> Todd hears that you're interviewing David French and then rushes to beat you to it. So uh, I'm sure that's the that's the way it worked out. But, um, but that's what uh, he said. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Brad and Bryce, man, uh, we heard. And then, so who are you, David? Um, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, thank you actually for being this man, rare voice of reason and grace in the midst of polarization, the culture wars, and what feels like a world gone mad. That is, that's no small accomplishment for anybody, but you have, you have a lot of personal stake in this, right? I remember actually first encountering your writing at National Review when you wrote the now infamous uh, OG Never Trump article. And, right. and you even wrote in, your, in the introduction to your new book, uh, which we have here, Divided We Fall, which is, I have not finished it yet, but it is outstanding so far. And you talk about the way this polarization that you're writing about in a book has affected you very personally. And I feel like that is an a very different context from the kind of um, above it all, above the fray kind of analysis yeah. that is often talked about this. So I just would love to start with how how have you stayed sane? Like, how are you actually pulling that off? Because hmm. I get, you know, we, we're as pastors, if we get criticized just a little bit from our sermon, it's like the world is ending. Yeah. And you had some terrible stuff happen to you and your family. Yeah. Well, you know, there's kind of a process that you go through when that happens. And one is there's just this I remember the first night when the threats and the terrible images uh, centered around my daughter, who's African-American, literally adopted from Ethiopia. When I first saw her cute little face photoshopped into a gas chamber online, mm. and I knew something, <laughs> newsflash, something bad is unfolding. Yeah. And it yeah. just began to spiral from there. And so you kind of go through stages. Stage one is how do I keep my family safe? Mm not just safe uh, physically, but safe from these images. How do you, how do you make sure that your wife does not see if thankfully she was in DC at a veterans uh, event fundraising for veterans, um, Iraq war and Afghanistan war veterans, when awful images of dead and dying African-Americans started to pollute her blog. She was a, a blogger on Patheos at the time. 
And I was able to block those and get rid of those before she saw any of it. And then you you go through cycled through this immediate family safety issue. And so as a dad and a husband, you're in crisis mode, you know, like you're in problem solving mode in that moment. And so that's actually in a way it's scary, but it's also, you know, you're, you know how to handle it. Like you mm-hmm. have a, mm-hmm. you have a crisis, you have a problem. Here's what you do through previous threatening incidents that we'd been through uh, before we had a contact, we have law enforcement contacts. So, you know, we, we knew what to do from, from that standpoint, from the other standpoint is then the emotional impact of it kind of settles in. Huh. And how do you handle that? Like, how do you handle that? Uh, and there's no playbook for it, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah. There's no playbook. And what it what you have to do is you have to, especially if, if your job, as my job is, is to, when the, within those areas that I write about and I think about and I podcast about, you know, my job is to take in information, absorb it and process it as objectively and as detached as possible. <laughs> and... And sort of begin to as free as much as you can because we're we're fallen human beings. We we have our biases, you know. We have our our personal histories. How do you process something like that that is one part of a larger whole, obje- as objectively as you can? Because when I say one part of a larger whole, that's very important. Because I was not the mm. only person experiencing this wave of hate. Sure. If you expressed up opposition to Donald Trump in 2016, it was really really widespread. Um, Ben Shapiro was the most received more anti-Semitic attacks than anybody else uh, in the media in the 2016 election. My colleague Jonah Goldberg was, I think, in the top three. Um, I knew people who had to be hospitalized because of the emotional impact of all of this hate. And so this was more than just me. I mean, Eric Erickson, who was never Trump at that time, had some people show up at his house and it just spy was so bad and one of the things that when you see the sheer extent of that Mm -hmm. it you realize something dark is being unlocked yeah um you know it's like oh yeah you think david you think but yeah something dark is being unlocked and you really ask yourself how extensive is this but then here's the other thing you also know that there are millions and millions and millions of trump supporters who are appalled by this if they even know about it right sure you can't sit there and say, oh, this is what it means to be a Trump. This is what the Trump movement is. Mm-hmm. But it's something mm-hmm. and it's meaningful. So how meaningful is it? I mean, those are all things that you're trying to unwind and un- unlock and try to figure out over time. And um, so, you know, you've got the personal safety. You've got the can I, how do I figure this out intellectually? Mm-hmm. And then you've just got the, you know, over time, how do you learn to live with this sort of constant recurring level of threat? Um, mm. And that that's proven to be an issue as well. Um, and and so, yeah, I mean, it it brings it home. Let's just put it this way for those people who say, oh, you're a latte swilling beltway egghead cocktail party attending <laughs> pundit. Number one, I don't live in the beltway. I live in Tennessee. But number two, this stuff is really, really real to me in a pretty profound way. Well, yeah, I mean, I know, you know, a big part of your story that you talk about in the book, too, is being a veteran as a as a JAG officer. Mm -hmm. And I'm a I'm a former chaplain in the Army National Guard myself. And Mm -hmm. it strikes me just as you're describing that whole process, how similar that move from crisis to emotional weight to chronic stress that that really mirrors a a similar uh deployment cycle of of PTSD and hypervigilance like you like that's all that that has come home to roost in a sense 
Right. Yeah, that's an interesting com- comparison that you make because there's a way, a weird way, because during our deployment, I deployed with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment uh, in Diala province during the surge, and we had a tough deployment. I mean, we had a we had tough mm. deployment, and we, we lost a lot of guys, including people who are just, you know, so dear to me. And the interesting thing is when you're in this daily rhythm of, I think, between November and the end of July— there, you couldn't find consecutive days unless there were sandstorms where everything, everyone sort of hunkered down, where we did mm. not have enemy contact of some type, where wow. our guys outside the wire did not have contact of some type, IED, sniper incident, firefight, you name it. And with lots of deaths, lots of injuries. And when you're in the moment of responding, um, there's something about it that you're just able to do it and you, you, your mind doesn't think deeply Hmm. (laughs) it thinks intensely Mm -hmm. but it doesn't it's not reflective um and for me i don't think i ever got i did not get fully reflective because the deployment was so intense until i got home it was when i got home and my you know uh, i was thinking about what to order at cracker barrel that it (laughs) kind of like just came down on me like a ton of bricks because when i was there Every day, I mean, I was a JAG officer, which meant I wasn't outside the wire every day, but I was outside the wire a lot. And I was responding to, in my capacity of dealing with shoot, don't shoot issues, dealing with detainees, to the consequences of a lot of the combat operations that were going on. And so I was in this kind of constant state of alertness. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, when you cycle out of that, you sometimes have this moment of, holy cow, what, what, has, what have I just been through? Yeah. 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 And it's, it strikes me how much this is like, it's so hard. It's especially hard to talk about polarization and and all of this when you are like, we're still in the midst of it. It's Mm -hmm. not like we have the perspective. And I was just realizing the other day that as a, right, I became a pastor like nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, it, it's not like people leaving the church is is new, right? But back then, the reasons for leaving were around either you know consumerism, and another church has a you know better programs, or there's maybe a deep doctrinal di- disagreement, right? But really, that was normally figured out on the front end because most people self select and they understand what they're getting into when they walk in the door, right? Yeah. But now it seems like there's that some flavor of reasons for people leaving is is almost exclusively rooted in political differences. Yeah. And it's the only re- reason I'm hearing anymore. Um, and so like, and it's not- and it's not one direction or the other. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, yeah. we're getting people leaving because we're too conservative and because we're too progressive simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Totally. And that's sure. not totally, ex- ex- uh, you know, you can't just explain that away as, you know, pent up pandemic frustration at this point, because this has been going on before this happened, but that just ignited it. Yeah. Um, so, Two questions about this 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 deeper dark thing that is that is unfolding. One, what the hell is it? <laughs> what is going on? Uh, and two, I'm, we're especially interested and want to ask about why has the evangelical church seemed to not have the immunity to this division and polarization that it should? Right? If mm. anyone has the resources to resist that, sure, it would. It, you would think that we would, but it has not been the case. Yeah. So let, let, I'll go with part A uh, and yeah. then part B. So part A, um, there's some really fascinating research that I talk about in my book that talks about how we sort our identities. Mm. And and one of the most interesting things that our polarization has grown so intense 
that people will sort every other aspect of their, and I mean every other aspect of their identity according to their politics. Yes. So Mm. what you have seen is there will be people who have the identical ethnicity and one person will call himself white if he's a Republican. The other person will call himself Hispanic if he's a Democrat. Hmm. So the identical ethnic identity, one person defaults to being white as a Republican. One person defaults to being Hispanic as a Democrat or the identical religious beliefs. And one person will default to calling themselves evangelical as a Republican or use another label if they're a Democrat. Protestant. So again, yes, wow. or just simply Christian maybe. Um, hmm. And they you so you have the identical... You have the identical belief, you have the identical ethnicity, but the mega identity is located in the politics. Hmm. I've talked to to pastors, for example, who want to speak into this moment, into this deeply divisive political moment, but they know, for example, let, they might have, a say, a longtime member who's very, very ill, and if they speak in a way that is um, implies some sort of reservations about Donald Trump, for example, that that very sick man who they've had a you know a pastoral relationship with for 20 years may not even let the pastor in the hospital room wow. for the pastor to minister to him man. i've had conversations like that where wow. and so you're you're all of a sudden well what is my pastoral role here there's no you know what what's the answer there that's not an easy answer <laughs> um and and part of the reason why we're here why is the evangelical church here in this position um, I, I think one of the short answers is, especially in the white evangelical church, is that we've allowed our members to be catechized into politics by Fox News and not by the church. Hmm. Um, I don't know about y'all's experience. I grew up, I'm, I have one of the most boring conversion stories in the history of conversion stories, <laughs> and it's this. I don't remember not believing in Jesus, and I don't remember not going to church. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, I, that's wonderful. I, and it's a gift. It's a. It's you know. I used to yeah. be sort of like down on that, but now I'm like, mm-hmm. no. This is that's what a what a marvelous thing. And so I grew up in church. I've never you know. Outside, I think the pandemic lockdown was the longest extended time that I wasn't in church services, including Iraq, because we had a chapel there. And wow. And um. And I I I can tell you the number of sermons I heard on politics less than five. Hmm. You know. Less than five, tons of sermons on what it means to be a Christian in the workplace, lots of Sunday schools about that, Hmm. tons of sermons about being a Christian husband or a Christian father. But to the extent that there was any instruction about being a Christian in politics, it centered mainly around issues. So here's Hmm. the Christian in politics is concerned with abortion and religious liberty. But Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about business, Christian and business around issues like You know the 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 Christian and the Christian and insurance is this kind of actuary. No, it was about sort of ethics and the the manner in which biblical truth infuses not just the goal of your business, but the manner in which you conduct your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I feel like in politics, what we did for a long, long, long time is we punted all of that to Fox, to talk radio, to activist groups who said. The goal is this. This is the goal. More religious mm. liberty, fewer abortions. And and that was that was what it meant to be a Christian in politics. Was that's the, the issues that you focus on. And that's an inadequate frame when all mm. of the other ethical frames start to fall away. Mm. You can kind of get there when your candidates that you're dealing with are are ethical and honorable people who disagree about specific issues. But when Honor and ethics begins to just shed entirely from the process. 
than the Christian who's only been catechized into specific issues and the rest of it is into Fox and talk radio. Mm-hmm. Well, you're at sea. I mean, you're just part of the problem. Yeah. I wonder, because as a pastor, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I'm totally on board. I grew up in the you know, evangelical church in the 80s and 90s and see everything you're saying in terms of we talked about issues. Now, as a pastor, it's hard to know how to engage in that process because things are so yeah. polarized that to say anything risks losing people almost immediately. And so, but I, I, is what you're saying, David, that the, the, the way maybe we need to engage in that in the context of the church is speaking to, to sort of the, the character and the nature of our political engagement, not necessarily directly to the issues themselves. Yeah, I would say, because I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been writing a lot about this and I've had a bunch of thoughtful people say, well, how would you suggest doing it then without yeah. igniting all of the hot button stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or like alienating one side of the congregation one yeah. week and then coming back and just, you know, getting rid of the other half the next week. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I have an idea and I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. And, and I'm, I'm think I'm, I'm putting into motion trying to operationalize this idea. Um, I'm going to be teaching uh, tentatively scheduled to teach a course briefly at Covenant College on this very notion okay. um, this next semester, just a short, like short, like one credit, three days, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And awesome. um, But so if, if anyone reads anything that I write, you know that I frequently refer to Micah 6, 8. Mm-hmm. What does Lord Lord require of you, a man? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly before the Lord your God. And I think of those as three triple interlocking obligations of a follower of Jesus, not just interacting in politics, but in life, but also interacting in politics. Yeah. And so I thought about what if, so there's the order that we're act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. What if you enter into the conversation about politics by reversing the order, walking Mm. humbly, loving mercy, and then you get to the hot button of the acting justly. And the reason why I say that is one of the absolute first things that started to depolarize me, to be honest, because if in, in the book I talk about how I've depolarized. Um, mm-hmm. I have, I've gone from being a Republican to being an independent, and I don't have any plans to change that. Um, one of the big things that really depolarized me was understanding the sheer, unbelievable complexity of our problems. Mm. And that's a humbling yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. That's no, a I, humbling I, thing. I love that. And uh, this is really timely because I am literally preaching on that passage in a politics sermon series this Sunday. So oh, wow. um, <laughs> I've been, I, I've been listening. Um, but, but one of the things that has really struck me is that if you are a culture like ours that thinks and believes genuinely that we can actually accomplish justice and mercy in some sense, according to our definitions, because we've lowered the bar, then walk humbly is going to be really, really hard. (laughs) But if you have God's standards for what justice and mercy actually looks like, and they're not political standards, to your point Mm -hmm. about the way we've been catechized by Fox News and MSNBC or et al., right? Um, Then it's going to be you're going to be humbled by the task in front of you and the realization that there is no political solution that can, can even rise to the standard of, of what God is, is calling us to. And yeah. that the only option you have is either be crushed or walk humbly with the Lord, your God, who is, who is covenantally faithful to you yeah. and loves you. Yeah. Well, and, and this is one of the things I just spoke at, uh, 
not long ago at John Brown University. It's a, a wonderful Christian college in Northwest Arkansas. And I was talking to the kid, uh, this kids, they're adult students. <laughs> that tells you I'm getting older, the kids, <laughs> the youngins. Um, and I said, step, shed the partisan mind as much as you possibly can. Hmm. Um, seek truth wherever you can find it. Hmm. Because this is what the partisan mind will tend to do. Like, let's take an issue. Let's just go to, let's just dive into one of the thorniest issues in American life, race. Okay. So an issue of race comes up, okay, you know, the occasioned by the, the George Floyd killing, occasioned by the Ar- Ahmad Arbery killing, yeah. all of these unbelievably mm-hmm. horrible things that have happened that have catalyzed America to think more about race. Yeah. Well, if you come at it from the partisan mind, the first thing you're going to think of are who are the conservatives that I can turn to hmm. to learn about race? That's where you go. That's where you go. Where are the conservative voices? Who on, you know, who uh, at X Magazine or who at XTV Network is going to give me sort of the frame to think about this? Um, there is a really fascinating article in The Atlantic talking about how how often white evangelical pastors will forward to black pastors that they're having these conversations with Candace Owens video. Right. And oh God. Yeah. And it's not yeah. that these pastors are like, it's not, you know, these are and these are conversations where people are trying to have a real conversation, mm-hmm. but a lot of these folks are coming from a partisan frame. Mm. So when the race issues pop up, they're going, who are the conservatives who are talking about race? Yeah. And so my view is in a post-partisan mindset, when a, hu- a huge issue pops up, we're saying, who is intelligently talking about race? Hmm. Who is compassionately talking about race? Who is historically literate in talking about race? And that notice I did not say conservative. I did not say progressive. Mm-hmm. I did not say liberal. I just want to know who knows stuff. And I'm not looking for a Moses, you know, <laughs> I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for some, the, the authoritative voice on it. I'm, I'm looking for voices for voices. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, and, but, but David, are you saying that, that people who disagree with us politically might have something that we should listen to sometimes? What? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to be misunderstood. Stay in your bubble, people. Stay in your bubble. Yeah. Uh, I was actually yeah. going to say, like, you, what you're describing sounds like the uh, the recent episode of Ezra Klein's podcast with Fox Media that you were on. With. Yeah, you were you were. It was so refreshing to have such dramatically different perspectives, talking intelligently, uh, respectfully. Like you, you, there was no dehumanizing going on there. No, and it was it was it was rational. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Yeah. I've learned a lot from Ezra. Like I'm, you know, we should be secure enough to say, yeah, you know, that guy that I disagree with vehemently on abortion, he's really informed my thinking on healthcare. Mm. Yeah. Can we say that? You know, yeah. can we say that? Um, or can we say that guy that I really vehemently disagree with on the Iraq war, he's taught me a lot about race. I mean, you know, those are mm. things that people can do. And, but when you're in the partisan mind, what the partisan mind says, Ooh, if I elevate Ezra Klein, is that sending a message that I'm not fully on the team? Or is that maybe helping the other team by paying mm-hmm. them a compliment? Um, and when you get in that partisan mind, you're always thinking about how does what I do, regardless of whether you're a public figure who has a big following, 
or a private individual who's just involved in the day-to-day Facebook wars, oh, you, you're always thinking, do I, am I helping my team or hurting my team? Whereas I feel like the Christian should be saying, am I getting closer to justice or am I getting further from justice? And those are different, con- different frames. Yeah. yeah. So David, one of the things you said that I, I thought was um, fascinating in your interview with Ezra Klein, I remember you saying something to the effect that both sides of the culture war have the sense that they're losing. Yeah. And I think that speaks to this issue of not just supporting my team at all costs, but also what's underneath that has got to be the sense of fear. Yes. And so walking humbly with your God is an incredibly important part of this. But even if we go back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, as somebody who has been, uh, you know, singled out and you have actually real legitimate reasons to be afraid of some of the, the, the things that have come at you personally, what, what hope is there for, especially for Christians in this season where fear is a... Uh, well, whether or not it's a legitimate motivator, it's a live motivator. It's an <laughs> omnipresent motivator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the number of really smart people that I have talked to who have said America will be over, over, mm. or America yeah. will be socialist if Joe Biden wins or before that, if Hillary Clinton wins. Um, I just debated Eric Metaxas at JB at John Brown University, and he said, if Biden wins, we could not have conversations like this again like the debate that we're about to have. Now, he's a smart guy. I mean, Yale grad wrote the Bonhoeffer book. Yeah. Um, and he's not a, he's completely wrong. I mean, he's just completely <laughs> wrong. Uh, but he's not atypical. Um, and and so there's two things to do with this fear, I, I think. One is attack it as a matter of fact. Are the stakes really that high? Hmm. Um you know, on religious liberty, what a lot of people are concerned about right now, 50, in the last 10 years in the United States Supreme Court, there's been 15 religious liberty cases. All 15 have been decided in favor of religious liberty, and 10 of the 15 by more than a 5-4 margin. Wow. So as an objective matter of law, religious liberty is more protected right now in the United States than it has been certainly in my adult lifetime and arguably in the whole history of the United States. A lot wow. of smart scholars will will say that. Now, Uh, white American Protestants don't experience it like that because what they used to have before this liberty was they had a lot of power. Hmm. They had a lot of power. Power is not the same as liberty. You know when liberty exists if both the powerful and the powerless enjoy the same freedoms. Um, And so what's happened is we've lost power and we've gained liberty and we've been a little upset at that trade. So one of the things is you can attack the, the the facts, the false claims that underlie the fear. But let's suppose things are bad. Things are bad. Well, the Bible has a lot to say to the people of God (laughs) when things are bad. Yeah. You're kidding. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, y'all. I mean, you're the pastors. But, uh, uh, you know, when Paul wrote, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love of sound mind, he was not writing that at the apex of Christian power in the world. Yeah. Yeah. so and then so that that gets deeper. So I, I'm going to stop monologuing right now. But so it's it's dealing with the facts that are 
that the fear is based on, but also dealing with the concept of fear itself. Man, I, I, the, so you're touching on something I, I, I is really, this is really fresh and I'm like wrestling with this myself right now is, is it's really clear. And Bryce and I, we've had, we had a podcast around power and how, how in so many ways, the kind of white evangelical church has confused, like what is under threat? Is it actually religious liberty or is it lifestyle, right? That New York mm-hmm. Times article uh, that came out, uh, gosh, it was several weeks ago now uh, um, with the title of um, uh, We Will Have Power. Uh, around Trump's uh, President Trump's, Trump's statement in 2016-ish, yeah, in Sioux yeah. Center, and um, that has really stuck with me because it feels like the buried lead here is it, it used to be that the church influenced primarily through virtue, and it was the the religious liberty, the space to to express that virtue um, in a pluralistic society that has made America in so many ways flourish over the first 200 years, not without, ex- not without exception, um, as we are doing business with that around race and, and social mm-hmm. justice right now, for sure. However, it feels like something in the last t- 10 to 20 years of a, a switch flipped, where instead of virtue being our, our vehicle for that, it switched to power. And, and I don't know, like, I'm still trying to figure out, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, because I, I'm still confused over like, what, what happened there? Was it that fear, um, like powers that it feels like a better antidote to fear than virtue does? Or what? I'm just kind of curious. Please help me think through that. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting when you're talking about, and we'll, we'll get into the really thorny subject of the rise of the religious right. Um, mm, yeah. But as Christians began to feel that they were losing cultural purchase, um, whether it's in the halls of academia, whether it is in Hollywood or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, the the antidote to that was often seen as increasing political mm-hmm. relevance. So um, Paul Weirich, who is one of the architects of the religious right, uh, you know, th- this, this I'm paraphrasing essentially what... Um, what an argument that he made that essentially what ended up happening is that the cultural left uh, or the the secular left gained cultural power and the religious right gained political power mm-hmm. and the cultural left got the and the left got the better of the exchange hmm. and and I think that there is some real validity to a critique that says that if you're focusing your energy of if you're fo- focusing your culture war through politics it's always going to be about power ultimately mm-hmm. it's um, but if you focus your mm-hmm. culture war through culture <laughs> you've got a much better chance for it to be about virtue and faith mm-hmm. um and so you know that's one of the things you know tim keller got a ton of blowback recently when he said that you know that there's Christians shouldn't have, it shouldn't be, uh, uh, you shouldn't have a political label that it automatically attaches to a Christian. And that there are multiple different ways in which a Christian can, in good faith, seek to tackle the same problem. Um, so, you know, there's no one exact way to end abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no one exact way to end racism. There's no, and that Christians can, in goodwill and in good faith, uh, disagree on that that path. And Part of the the blowback to that was, I think, rooted in this sort of conviction that a lot of Christians have started to have that the path through all of those things is political. All of yeah. them is political. Yeah. Well, this so, intersects so much with um, 
I, another person who I think is has felt has been like really clarifying in the midst of all this is uh, Yuval Levin mm-hmm. and his um, like I his book The Fractured Republic really man I just I, I have not had a chance to read um, oh, what's the name of his new one um, A Time to Build. Yes, a time to build. And I know that that is so much more building on the thesis and the very thing that I'm about to talk Mm -hmm. about um, around the importance and value of institutions. But what you're describing in terms of the cultural influence that the secular left gained a foothold in, it it was primarily because it was institutions that they Mm -hmm. uh, very much um, got leadership within, right? Mm -hmm. And so the Man, that is because institutions are what shape identity. Uh, they are what shape virtue. And if that is the place where Christians have kind of seeded, I hate, I hate using the the. I don't hate over leveraging the culture wars analogy because this is, as you've said before, this is not war. Um, mm-hmm. There's real war, and then there's this. This is not the yeah. same thing. Um, but it, how can we have a hope? of competing with cable and social media when we have no, we have demonstrated a lack of value institutions elsewhere. Why would anyone look to the church for their catechesis around their identity either? We've, we've been sawing off the, the branch that we've been standing on in so many ways. Yeah, we really have. But you know, the, the other thing is though, there are also very healthy church institutions that exist. And I think there is a It'd be it'd be interesting to study this, um, and I'm not quite sure how you could do it. But I I kind of have a what could be a half baked or maybe three quarters, perhaps fully baked theory. I like it that people who are national commentators and national analysts who are quite sort of catastrophic in their thinking. I wonder how many of them are involved in very healthy local institutions just in their lives. Mm, so, wow. for example. One of the reasons, and I, I was really sort of thinking about this um, in the context of of why do I have much less of an emergency view about, say, a drag queen story hour happening in Sacramento, California, hmm. um, than some other people do, or why do I why do I just feel, even though we've been through some of these really hellish things, why do on a day to day basis do not feel that despair? Hmm. And and I and I, the best I can think of it is. I belong to a very healthy church that wow. has a good pastor and um, wonderful biblical leadership. And I have friends who are Christian friends and I have a wonderful, you know, a, a wonderful wife and a healthy marriage. And so I'm in, in sort of this very local moving into the community level. I have a place in this world. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have a family, yeah. I have a, a church home and all of these are healthy and they're vibrant and, I have a way to connect into this community and I have a way to impact my community around me, which I should do more because uh, yeah. I just overschedule my life. But the, <laughs> there's, there's all of these things are like hanging right out there that are available yeah. for me to do. And I think it just changes your outlook on the world. Discipleship um, and spiritual formation actually make a difference in the way that you in- interact in the world. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Imagine. So (laughs) on the other side of the spectrum, I heard you use the phrase uh, political LARPing. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. I thought was an incredible analogy because I used to live near a park where they would there would be LARPing happening like in person. And please tell me you LARPed. I have never LARPed. Have you? No. See, my problem is (laughs) I I came of age in the pre LARPing era. So. (laughs) 
You were before I, your time. I was before my time. <laughs> I I came of age in the you know playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is sort of it's role playing, but it's not the live action part of it. We we had yeah. gra- we had graph paper and uh, figurines. So I never I never knew I never knew I could put on a suit of armor. And and so so what you're saying is, is if you had seen this happening in the park near your house, it would have been attractive and and pulled you in potentially. I might have mounted my own independent cavalry charge. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. So where you're going with this, Bryce, might not work now. But well, it may be. Well, again, it was David's phrase, but political LARPing or political hobbyism. um, I I was really interested in um, in the concept because another reality, I mean, we know demographically that men tend to be less representative, uh, represented in the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. Um, anecdotally, as pastors, um, I mean, I certainly see this dynamic that mom is often the one getting the family to church. Mm-hmm. And often, I mean, we've had in our church several uh, moms who bring their kids to church, but the husband stays home. Mm-hmm. And I thought of that as a an interesting parallel to what you're describing. Oh, maybe this is what you're describing of political hobbyism where uh, the husband's driving to work and is being discipled by cable news or by talk radio. Um, And that is almost a replacement for the sort of communal uh, religious ritualistic experience of, uh, of what happens in the church, which contributes to our discipleship and to our spiritual formation. Oh man, that's a rich topic. Um, especially when you consider, especially, you know, men, um, middle-aged guys, people, my age, a lot of research shows that, um, not only are they not in church as much as say their wives are, they don't have, they have more trouble forming and sustaining friendships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of loneliness, a lot of a lack of a sense of purpose. Yeah. And politics can fill that. Um, angry tweeting in a way sort of can can fill that. I mean, you know, one of the things that at least I've noticed is that the the troll swarm that comes against me is disproportionately guys and sort of disproportionately guys who are almost acting as if the trolling is toughness. It's like sort of how they're acting out their masculinity or their, you know, how the world is suppressing their masculinity. So they're going to be all guy on Twitter, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by LARPing, this live action role play. It is a substitute for real purpose. It is a substitute for real engagement and activism. And And I remember putting it this way. Um, in a debate I had not not long ago where people were talking about these existential stakes and existential stakes. And I was like, I don't think you even really believe it. It's not like, you know, if your grandchildren say, so granddad, what did you do in the drag queen wars? <laughs> well, well, Dorothy, I tweeted. I tweeted a lot and with volume and vigor. Oh, granddad, tell me about it. No, I mean, but that's essentially... <laughs> Where a lot of people are right now. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm really angry about what's happening in this world. So by golly, watch me tweet. And mm. and at the end of the day, it's just, it's vapor. It's it's nothing. And I get upset mm. about this in the, in the context of the pro-life world. You see an enormous amount of energy around, on Twitter especially, um, that, you know, you, David French, if you do not support Donald Trump, you have blood on your hand. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, how much time and money have you dedicated to your local crisis pregnancy? Time or money? 
how much have you done? Mm-hmm. But I, for 99% of these guys, what they're doing is tweeting and, mm-hmm. and about things that are of existential importance on Twitter, but not enough to influence their offline life at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this, that's what I mean by LARPing. Wow. So and this I, is that, maybe... in a bad sense. There's good LARPing and there's bad LARP. That's bad LARPing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. This is where we're going to pause our conversation for today. In part one of this interview with David French, we've really been talking about the problem of polarization in our world. In part two, we'll begin to explore some of the solutions. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. We'll bring you part two on Monday. If you're interested in hearing more from David French, be sure to pick up his latest book, Divided We Fall, wherever you like to buy books. David also writes several columns each week at The Dispatch, where you can also find his podcast. Thank you for joining us today on Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week with the rest of our conversation with David French, helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed.